Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 18 today. There is great rejoicing in our home as we transition from the Thanksgiving holiday and place our focus on Christmas. And you would think uh, it was because we were excited about all the Christmas decorations or we're beginning to enjoy the Christmas treats and reread the great account of the Christ child coming to earth. And that is a significant part of the rejoicing. But there is rejoicing because there is finally unity in our home. You see, there is a significant divide in the Zietlo home, and it has gone on for many, many a year. It is heightened at this time of year, and the great divide is over when Christmas music can begin. There are three conflicting opinions on this ever so important topic that has led to three conflicting factions in my family. There are the October 1st observers. I know, I know. There are the November 1st observers. And there are the traditional correct view, the after we eat Thanksgiving turkey on Thanksgiving observers, just as they did in the early church. (laughs) Much ink on our family text thread has been spilt explaining our positions and trying to correct the view of our faulting brothers and sisters. I wonder how many families here at Cross and Crown are walking wisely and uh, just recently turned on Nat King Cole, or Bing Crosby, or Wham, last Christmas I gave you my heart. And you began just a couple of days ago. And how many families have been irresponsible in their musical choices? I'm not going to call you out. That's between you and the Lord. But regardless, we all love to listen to Christmas music and the great Christmas carols because they remind us of the marvelous and the miraculous. They remind us of what God did in sending His only begotten Son to earth, how He became man like us. We love the story of the angels and the shepherds, of Mary and Joseph, of the wise men and the star. We see the fulfillment of prophecy, the virgin birth. We celebrate how God arranged the birth of the Christ child. But we must not forget the aim or the reason or the motivation for all of it. We miss out on the full joy that is offered to us and the peace that we can receive. If our focus is only on the what without a significant meditation on the why. As we turn our attention to the Advent season and celebrate Christmas this year, my hope for all of us is that we rejoice in both the what and the why. That, he would, that we would praise God for the, the miraculous, but also we would praise Him for the motivation behind it. That we would experience peace in the story of Christ's coming, but also the stimulus of His coming. This morning, as we study this passage together, I want us to see four reasons why Jesus dwelt among us, why he tabernacled among us, why he became man and took on flesh, 
Why Mary and Joseph? Why the angels? Why the shepherds? Why the magi? Why Bethlehem? So that we not only marvel at the amazing miracles surrounding the incarnation, but we rejoice, we praise, we, in, we experience the peace that comes knowing why he sent his son. The author of Hebrews in this passage shares four reasons why Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He says that in verse 14. And became like his brethren in all things. Verse 17. So let's read the text together. The author begins in verse 14 by saying, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the story. We are amazed at how you orchestrated it all. We are amazed at a virgin birth, at the fulfillment of prophecy, the angels, the star, how you made all things work according to your timing. But Lord, we should be more amazed that you would send your Son from heaven to earth to become one of us, to empty himself. Father, as we look at this passage together, encourage our hearts as to the why. May our hearts be enthralled by why you have done this, for us. And may this Christmas we worship you not only for what you did, but why you did it as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, his objective was to communicate that Jesus was better than the old religion, better than the old ways, and to encourage his Jewish readers not to drift away, not to abandon their faith. And so he begins this letter by clearly declaring who Jesus was. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, he clearly declares the deity of Christ. We are to stick to Christ. Our hope is to be found in Christ because Christ is God. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, it mentions that he is the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, seated at God's right hand, a place of highest power, a place of highest honor. 
He's described as better than the angels. He inherited a better name than the angels. That is, he is called God's son. Such that God's angels are called to worship him. And only God receives worship. More than that, he is called God by God himself. He is, his throne endures forever. All creation will perish. But this, these first two chapters speak that Jesus will remain because he is eternally the same. In the beginning was the Word. But as we move to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, the second half, the author pivots his focus, and his focus now is on Christ's humanity. We stick to Christ because he is God, but we stick to Christ because he was a man. We see in verse 9 that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. We see that he suffered and tasted death as only a human can. In our text before us, as we said, verse 14, it states clearly that Jesus partook of the same. He shared in flesh and blood like the children who God gave to him. And in verse 17, it declares that he had been made like his brethren in all things. The Bible clearly communicates that he was made of the same flesh as we are and shared in the same experiences that we have. John 1, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. People saw Him. People spoke to Him. People touched Him. He was not a spirit. He was fully human. The Gospels teach us that He was born, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. That He grew, Luke chapter 2, verse 40 and 52. That He grew tired, John 4, 6. He got thirsty, John 19, 28. He grew hungry, Matthew chapter 4, 2. He demonstrated physical weakness, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 and Luke 23, 26. At the end of the Gospels, it records that He physically died, Luke Chapter 23, verses 46. And after his resurrection, he had a real human body. Luke 24, 39. He ate and he drank. He slept. He worked. He got cold. He grew up. He even cried as a baby. Think about that the next time we sing, Away in a manger, no crying he makes. Probably not theologically accurate. Jesus was fully man. He was flesh and blood, just as we are flesh and blood. Not kind of human, not sort of human, but totally, 100% human. But why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to become a man? Could God not save his people apart from the incarnation? Well, our text answers that question. And I cannot think of a better time for this text than as we celebrate the incarnation, as we celebrate Christ coming to this earth as a baby. Verse 14 shares with us the first reason that Jesus had to dwell with us. Number one, he came to destroy the devil. Jesus became a man to destroy the devil. 
Therefore, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus had to dwell amongst us so that he could live a perfect human life and die a sacrificial human death in order to render powerless the devil. The Greek word translated render powerless is is, uh, translated in, in other places as destroy, break the power of, render inoperative. It often spoke of a tree that was barren, that was there, but it didn't produce fruit. It didn't accomplish what it was created for. Jesus became flesh and blood to nullify the power of the devil. John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, said, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus came to this earth, he had a foe in mind. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to beat someone up. The author of this letter surely, surely had Genesis 3 on his mind as he penned this passage. We have the fall of man. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have hidden. God now comes to the garden to speak to them or or comes where they're hiding and he comes to speak to them. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The serpent would bruise the heel of the coming Christ through his death on the cross and the coming Christ would crush the serpent with a mortal blow on the head through the same cross. You see, Satan, disguised as a serpent, came to attack the first Adam in an attempt to damn all of his descendants to hell. Satan came disguised as a serpent To steal the glory of God. That was his plan. That was his intention. So Jesus became the second Adam. He took on flesh and blood to reverse that curse. To offer eternal life to the man that was damned. And he came to glorify God which Satan sought to steal from his glory. The whole salvation plan is to bring glory to God. Jesus deprived Satan of his power. Owen Strand put it this way, and I like how he describes it. The devil came, became a serpent to kill us, but Jesus became a man to save us. Jesus said of Satan in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Christ came to fulfill an age-old prophecy that was made immediately after mankind fell into sin. Jesus came to defeat Satan, to crush his head. Jesus broke Satan's power over believers by his death. 
Now, obviously, Satan still exercises great power. We see that in the Word, and we see that in our own experience. Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Just looking at the world around us, we see his influence, we see his handiwork. But he has been mortally wounded by the death of Christ. And just as salvation is partially realized now and will be fully enjoyed later, Satan still is at work today, but will be ultimately defeated in the end. We are to resist him. We are to be alert to his schemes. But Jesus has rendered him powerless to kill, powerless to damn, powerless to destroy. Jesus Christ defeated Satan in the area of his greatest strength, namely in his power to inflict permanent death. Jesus came to destroy the destroyer. He did so at Calvary, which was the devil's death blow. The headshot foretold of in Genesis 3.15. No longer is mankind destined to die in their sins. No longer is there a uh, is eternal damnation man's only option. No, there is a pathway to life. It is a narrow pathway, but it has been offered to us in Christ. And we await the devil's inevitable final destruction that has been promised in Revelation. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus came to reverse the curse that the devil brought about through the temptation and sin of Adam. Jesus in his humanity lived the life that Adam was created to live and rendered powerless the devil's goal to steal to kill and destroy for those who believe on his name. He came to steal God's glory and damn his creation. And Jesus came to give God glory and to provide life for his creation. That leads us to the second reason for Christ's humanity. Not only did he come to destroy the devil, but he also came to deliver us from the fear of death. Beginning in the middle of verse 14, it says, Through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Paul made it clear in Romans chapter 3 that the wages of sin is death. That the penalty of our sin is both physical death and spiritual death. That not only will our life here on earth end, but we will be separated from God for eternity and endlessly receive his wrath and hell forever and ever, as it says in Revelation 10, 20. Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Satan, when he tempted Adam and Adam sinned, he thrust us all into damnation. Yes, by nature, but also through choice, as Pastor Lance mentioned last week. All men, 
are headed toward death. All of humanity is headed toward death. And all men fear death. And that fear of death enslaves mankind. In that this fear leads us to behave in ways that please Satan. It it enslaves us to live selfishly. It enslaves us to live for the present. It enslaves us to live to avoid death. But Jesus became a man for the very purpose of dying to provide for us life and the removal of the fear of that death. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection Remove the fear of death because in it, not only did he defeat death himself, but he defeated it for all that would believe in his name. Romans 6 verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. That is why Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, could say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's ironic That Jesus had to die to defeat death. He had to die and then be raised again, which then demonstrated his victory over death. The English Puritan John Owen wrote a book entitled, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. We don't even have to read the book. I'm not encouraging you high schoolers to not read books. But the death of death in the death of of Christ. Christ had to die and be raised from the dead to demonstrate that victory over death. Now death should bring fear for the unbeliever. It should cause the unbeliever to quake in their boots because death is coming for you. There is no avoiding physical death. And just as there is no avoiding physical death, your spiritual death is ensured as well. The Bible continually warns us of eternal separation from God, but not only eternal separation from God, but also eternal damnation, endless conscious torment forever and ever. Death is to be feared, but for the believer, the one who has placed his or her faith on Jesus for salvation. The fear of death is defeated because death is defeated in Christ. For the believer, death is not something to be feared. It is simply to be understood as the gateway to life with our Savior and Lord. So there is no fear. And our grief is not as the world grieves. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Brothers and sisters, death isn't the great unknown. 
It is not simply the end. We don't live our lives simply to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. We don't live our lives fearing its end. No, we understand that death is that moment when we become absent from the body, but also present with the Lord. We rejoice in the same thought as the thief on the cross when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. In Christ's earthly ministry, he took what we feared most because of its horrific reality and he turned it into the best possible eternal thing for you and I. Christians, as we face sickness, as we face death, there is to be a different way we view it. Because Christ came and became a man and died and had victory over that death. And so we have life. We have abundant life on this side of the grave and everlasting life on that side of the grave. Death is not the end, but really it is simply the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal paradise. It is the beginning of having unaltered fellowship with Jesus. It is the end of illness, end of sickness, end of physical death, end of sin. And with death defeated, so is the fear we have for it and the enslavement that it brings. We have no fear of death because death has no power over us. When you look back at church history and you see these men and women, if you look back at Hebrews 11 and you see what happened to these men and women who stood for Christ, you say, how could they possibly do that? How could they have the courage? How could they have the the ability to stand for what they believed in the face of such horrific death? Because they had a firm understanding of life. They had a firm understanding of the resurrection. They had a firm understanding of heaven. The The fear of death is not our master. We are no longer enslaved to it. Our master has promised us immediate audience with him. And when this life ends, instead of a a dreaded punishment, there is heavenly reward. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. The first chapter of Revelation in verse 17 and 18, it says, Do not be afraid. I, Jesus, am the first and the last and the living one. It's like he's got a highlighter or an underliner or he's making it bold. I'm living. I defeated death. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Don't don't miss what Jesus said. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful because he is the living one. He was dead, but now through his resurrection, he is alive, and he is alive forevermore, and he holds the keys or the power of death. What type of freedom, what does this type of freedom look like practically? Turn real quick to Philippians chapter 1. Paul got it. Paul understood it. Philippians chapter 1. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul didn't know what he wanted. To live here on earth meant that he lived for his Savior. He served his Savior. He was his Savior's hands and feet. He was advancing his Savior's kingdom. And he wanted to stay so that he could accomplish that. But he also understood to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. What we see here is the very opposite of fear enslaving Paul. Paul looked forward to it. He understood that the blessings which lie ahead after death, they were vastly greater than the blessings of this life. Jesus dwelt among us to defeat death. And in so doing, he defeated the fear that enslaves us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do we walk around in fear of a defeated opponent? That leads us to the third reason Jesus dwelt amongst us. We see that in verse 17. He came to make atonement for our sins. He came to make atonement for our sins. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice the emphasis of that English translation. He had to be made like his brethren. This is the only way that you and I can be saved. This was the only way that Satan could be destroyed. This is the only way that death could be defeated. It was a man that thrust all humanity into sin and death. And it had to be another man, the second Adam, the greater David, Jesus, that would come to bring about salvation. Paul in Romans 5.19 said, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one that many will be made righteous. The author here is clearly stating that the incarnation is foundational in our salvation. Without the glorious event of Bethlehem, without Mary and Joseph, without the wise men, without the shepherds, without the angels, without the star, there is no salvation. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now this identification with us made possible his ministry as our great high priest, in which he would be merciful to us and faithful to us. To God. This is the first of 17 times that the book of Hebrews uses the term high priest. If you want to look at the other 16, have fun this afternoon. The original recipients of this letter, as we said, were Jewish. They were Hebrews. They understood the priestly system and the need for a priest to offer sacrifices. The Jews looked to a priest, a man from among themselves, who had been appointed by God to serve as their mediator before God. 
And the primary duty of the high priest was to make reconciliation by the removal of sin, which, was cre- which had created the estrangement between God and man. And because of our sin, both by nature and by choice, mankind is in need of a mediator to approach and deal with a holy and just God. And part of Hebrews is, is setting up the old system and comparing it to Jesus and the new covenant and saying Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. And we have a high priest who is sinless. Like the Levitical priest, Jesus offered a sacrifice to satisfy the law of God. But unlike the Levitical priests who had to continually offer sacrifices, Jesus only had to offer his sacrifice once, gaining eternal redemption for all who would come to God through him. At the end of verse 17, it says that he came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or sacrifice or satisfaction. Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God. In other words, he came to absorb the wrath of God. He came to take the full cup of God's wrath. It was poured out on him. Every last drop was drained so that there would not be any left for your sins or mine. Propitiation, atonement, absorbing the wrath of God is not the idea of God taking our sin, pushing it under the carpet. It's not him going, I love you so much, I'm just not going to deal with it. No, God in his holiness must deal with sin. He has to judge sin. His wrath is towards sin. And for him to be God, he has to pour out that wrath on sin. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, He, God, made him, Jesus, who know no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't hide our sin. Jesus didn't cover it so God didn't see it. Jesus took the penalty and the punishment that you and I deserved. God's wrath for mankind was poured out on the God-man, Jesus Not for any sin that he committed, but for the sin that you and I have committed in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our deeds. Last week, Pastor Lance reminded us that God would judge every sin. This is the phrase, every sin and every sinner. That he would pour out his wrath on the sinner or the son. And Jesus came so that the wrath that you and I deserved would be poured out fully on him. And there's nothing left in that cup for you and I and in our sin. Christ came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To provide a substitute for those the Father would give him. He became our substitute. He took the penalty we deserved in our place. This is what the theologians call penal substitution. 
The word penal means related to punishment for offenses, and substitution means the act of a person taking the place of another. So penal substitution is the act of a person taking the punishment for someone else's offenses. And in our salvation, Jesus Christ is the substitute, and the punishment he took on the cross was ours. 1 Peter 2, 24, and he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body, his earthly body, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were what? Healed. There had to be wounds for us to be healed. Christ's act of sacrifice demonstrated both his mercy and his faithfulness. Mercy in that he took what we deserved. Faithfulness in that he lived perfectly for the Lord. For Jesus to make propitiation for our sins, he had to become our perfect high priest. And for him to be our perfect high priest and represent man to God, he had to be a man. And that man was to be the savior of his people. And that is exactly what the angels declared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Finally, Christ not only came to destroy the devil, to deliver us from the enslavement of fear and death and atone for our sins, but he also came to help us in our temptations. Verse 18 concludes our passage, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Remember who this letter was written to. It was written to a group of people who were being opposed for their faith. The reason they were looking at this whole old covenant, new covenant, because they were being rejected by their family. This new covenant brought about great persecution. These, were, these readers were presently facing persecution and martyrdom was right around the corner. They were questioning if this Christian faith was really worth it. They were considering quitting. And so this letter was penned to remind them that they have a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their temptation, because he himself faced trial. He himself was tempted. Jesus came not only to bring about forgiveness of past sins and to usher us into a future glory, but he came to help his people now, in the present, in your day-in, day-out activities. As you seek to live for this Christ, he came to help you. He came to help us in our temptation. The Greek word aid in verse 18 is translated in other passages as help. Jesus tabernacled with us to help us in our Christian life. God's demands for practical holiness are combined with God's provisions for power to walk in that holiness. 
He doesn't just assign without providing a way for us to accomplish it. And one of those ways is through the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Verse 17 speaks of Jesus removing the guilt that was ours because of sin once and for all. But verse 18 speaks of a present help of those who are in need. Because Jesus was human, and because he knows us so well, he knows our weaknesses. He knows our propensities and our temptations, and he shows great mercy. He came to know us, and that knowledge directs him in helping us. He was exposed to the trials that we face, to the difficulties that we encounter. He was betrayed. He was mistreated. He lost loved ones. He felt sadness. He knows what the hardships are that are a part of an individual seeking to live for God, to fulfill God's will in his or her life. He knows the hardships that come with obedience. And that is what makes him such a great high priest. Two chapters later in this letter, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, would write, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As our great high priest, Jesus can help us because he has undergone the same type of trials and experiences that we have, but to a, great, to a greater extent. And, and his experience ended in victory. So he knows how to walk in victory over temptation. He's able to understand our temptations because he went through them. So not only must we relish the baby, but we must firmly know and understand the man that he became as he is not only our Savior, but he is is our helper and example. Again, a few chapters down in this book, in chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus the originator and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He is our helper in that he grants strength, he gives grace, and he is our example. As we celebrate the Christmas holiday this year, may we never forget the reason of his coming. May the motivation of his incarnation be the good news of great joy that will be for each of 
us. His earthly ministry defeated our greatest enemy. It delivered us from our greatest fear. It removed the wrath that we deserved, and it provides for us great help as we seek to live for him. What great peace we have because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you're not a disciple of Christ, those things don't apply to you. Your enemy has come to destroy you. Death is coming for you. There is no atonement. That wrath That cup of wrath is full and it is coming for you because of your sin. I would encourage you to confess that sin before the Lord, to say, I deserve that sin, but I understand and recognize that this baby that was born at Christmas, that he came to live a life of perfection so that he could become my substitute, so that your wrath would be poured out on him and not me. And Lord, please save me through the work of Jesus Christ. If you do that today, then the joy and the peace that this incarnation brings will be yours. Not today, not just tomorrow, but forever. And I would encourage you to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the perfection that was seen when he was an infant, a toddler, a child, a teenager, a young man, and an adult. In every way, he was obedient. In every way, his heart was directed to you. He worshiped you and obeyed you and fleed from sin. He deserved no punishment, no wrath. Because of your love, you sent that son, that perfect son, to be the Lamb of God, to take away my sin, our sin. And so, Lord, as we think about this baby and we think about his life and we think about his death and we think about his resurrection and we think about his post-resurrection ministry at the right hand of your throne, may we rejoice. May we have peace. May we worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.